Radio Parallax, as you no doubt have noted over the years, dear listener, is uh, somewhat freeform in its approach to uh, programming. The same can be said about the two stations which uh, regularly air our programming, KZFR in Chico and KDVS in Davis. Public radio stations need your support. They do not depend upon the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Bill and Melinda Gates haven't sent any money in. The Alfred P. Sloan Foundation also appears to be missing in action. We're not sure about Jan Schrem and Maria Minetti Schrem, but even if they have tossed in some dough, we depend upon you, my dear listener. So we ask you to please do what you can next week. Of course, you can call in any time. This is one problem we have with fundraising is that it shouldn't all shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket and depend upon one week of fundraising. But nevertheless, one week is designated for this. It's on you. You need to make the call to keep the programming that you enjoy on the air. All right, enough said this week. We enjoyed last week some direct reading we did from Neil Sheehan's classic book on the Vietnam War centered on John Paul Van, but basically focusing in on the American effort. And I think we may, on this week's program, do a little bit of a preview by reading from Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. We've been sent an advanced copy of it and have read it and hope to bring you uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson in the weeks to come. He, we've had him on before, and he is, as you might imagine, a, a very good guest. So I think a few minutes from now, I'm going to go to his book, an excerpt from it. But first, I want to cite an article that we, we mentioned, I don't know, a few months back. It was a very small point, but the kind of thing that we, we just can't resist. It has long been presumed that the nearest star system to us in our solar system is that of Alpha Centauri. Unfortunately, for those of us who live in North America, you can't see Alpha Centauri although it is the second brightest star visible to those in Australia. It's long been known that when you point a telescope at Alpha Centauri, it splits. It's actually two stars, one a dead ringer for our sun, and one a little bit cooler and a little bit smaller, Alpha Centauri A and B, respectively. But there is a third member of the pair, or at least it has been assumed that there's a third member of the pair, Proxima Centauri, which is in fact the closest star to us. Whereas Alpha A and B are 4.37 light years away, Proxima is 0.13 light years closer at 4.24. There's been a lot of publicity about this star of late because it was discovered, much to people's astonishment, that it has a planet orbiting it. It has a planet orbiting it that's about the size of the Earth and When you do the math, you find out that that planet is in the Goldilocks zone where water, if there was water on the surface, could be liquid. But in science, assumptions need to be tested. And although it was always assumed that because Proxima Centauri was moving through the heavens at about the same rate as Alpha, that it must be gravitationally linked. Well, we reported a few months ago that researchers at the Paris Observatory in France did some very... uh, very careful measurements and and concluded that, well, you could now say for sure that Proxima Centauri was, in fact, orbiting Alpha Centauri. When they did the math, they found out that its velocity differs from that of its brighter partners by just 
270 meters per second, which turns out, when you do the math, is half the speed it would need to escape their gravitational grasp. So the jury is in. They are a triple star system. This is the kind of thing that Neil deGrasse Tyson would appreciate. You know, somebody else we need to bring on this program again would be Bob Berman. His article in Astronomy Magazine, Bob Berman's Guide to Cosmic Rays, was pretty cool. But if we're going to talk about astronomers and astronomy today, I think we better stick to Neil deGrasse Tyson because Bob Berman's piece is a little more complicated. I think what I want to do instead is focus on things that are perhaps a little more simple and in most instances, things I'm going to pull from the archives. I've been going through some old files and find some stuff that we talked about in some cases, you know, 10, 12 years ago that eh, is worth talking about again. Here's something from consumeraffairs.com from June of 2005 that I want to hit on. They were talking 20, they were talking in 2005 about the emergence of West Nile virus, which of course has only been made a situation further complicated by the development of the Zika virus epidemic uh, of late. In any rate, the culprit in this case is mosquitoes, and the article is about the use of bug zappers to help reduce the mosquito populations. The problem with this is, it just doesn't work. Consumer Affairs noted that every hardware and home improvement store has a wide selection of bug zappers. However, biologists and environmentalists have questioned the effectiveness of these devices for killing mosquitoes and other biting insects since the zappers first began making that annoying sound. Repeated studies strongly suggest, and in some cases just demonstrate that these devices have no benefit for outdoor mosquito control. They do kill bugs, no doubt about that, but they're killing the wrong kind of bugs. What are they zapping? Studies have shown they actually kill mostly non-biting aquatic insects or predators and parasites while failing, while killing only a small fraction of mosquitoes and biting flies. So, save your money. And here's a public service announcement I think we should probably insert. Uh, in light of the rising frequency of human grizzly bear conflicts, the Montana Department of Fish and Game has advised hikers, hunters, and fishermen to take extra precautions and to keep alert for bears while in the field. They advise that outdoorsmen wear noisy little bells on their clothing so as to not startle bears that maybe aren't expecting them. Outdoorsmen are also advised to carry pepper spray with them in case of an encounter with a grizzly bear. Now, of course, since the black bear is a relatively benign species and the grizzly bear can be quite dangerous, it's a good idea to watch out for fresh signs of bear activity and to examine the scat of the bears. It's important, of course, to distinguish between black bears and grizzly bears. Black bear poop is small. It contains quite a bit of seeds and perhaps some squirrel fur, and smells quite a bit like berries. Grizzly bear poop, on the other hand, contains little bells and smells like pepper spray. And yes, that's what's known as a joke. Another joke which I have in front of me, which is very visual, which is always a problem when you're on radio, uh, but I will try and describe it to you because it's just been cracking me up for a dozen years. The text notes that actor and comedian Jerry Lewis received a medal from Paris Mayor Bertrand Delano. Lewis was honored by the French on his 80th birthday by receiving a medal and an induction into the Legion of Honor, where he received the honorary title of Legion Commander. What makes this funny is the picture where Jerry Lewis has put the medal into his mouth and is biting it. 
A very old joke, of course, on how you would test whether a quarter or 50 cent piece was any good. And here's a piece that's age indeterminate, but I think is probably perennial. It's uh, from the health section of the week. The article notes that for years, doctors have been told to avoid medical jargon when speaking with patients. They've been encouraged to use plain language to make sure that the patient understands. But the British Medical Journal put together a study of 740 patients and discovered that they actually preferred hearing complex terminology. It was noted that medical labels such as gastroenteritis reassured patients that their problem was being taken seriously. If a doctor instead told them they had an upset stomach or an irritated stomach, parents felt there was an implication that their suffering was minor and didn't require medical care. Patients also associated medical jargon with professionalism. They were more confident in doctors who sounded like they spent a lot of time reading medical textbooks. Which leads me to segue into something that is a joke, but is also completely true. Perhaps one of the greatest truisms I can think of in medicine, which is that the patient tells you, referring to the doctor, what they have in English, and you, the doctor, then tell them what they have in Latin. And I think that until you've been a practicing physician, you sometimes just don't realize how true that is. Here's a piece that's somewhat amusing in a, in a dark, dark way. Article from April of 2004. Now, as Radio Parallax has happily reported uh, in the recent year or two, the situation with Cuba has finally relaxed. It appears we are well on our way toward the normalization of relations between the two countries. I think it was pretty clear to well, it wasn't clear to everybody, apparently, but it was clear to most people that the embargo put in place by President John F. Kennedy did not bring down the Castro regime. In fact, when Fidel finally did expire last November, he had outlasted JFK, LBJ, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, two terms, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bill Clinton, two terms, George W. Bush, two terms, and about 95% of Barack Obama's two terms in office. But here's an item for you from April of 04. The Treasury Department, it was known at the time, which was entrusted with blocking the financial resources of terrorists, had at that point assigned five times as many agents to investigate Cuban embargo violations as it had to track Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein's money. The Office of Foreign Assets Control said that between 1990 and 2003, it opened only 93 enforcement investigations related to terrorism, and since 1994 had collected just $9,400 in fines for terrorism financing violations. In contrast, the Office of Foreign Assets Control had opened 10,683 enforcement investigations since 1990, for possible violations of the long-standing economic embargo against the Castro regime, and collected more than $8 million in fines since 1994, mostly from people who sent money to, did business with, or traveled to Cuba without permission. Perhaps I should feel lucky that having made four trips to Cuba during that interval, uh, uh, I never got dunned. Of course, if anybody from the Trump Office of Foreign Assets Control is listening, I would say, I'm just kidding. And uh, when it comes to trouble with travel, uh, we have this story that's been uh, quite 
inflammatory over this incident on United Airlines, where purportedly one Dr. David Dow of Kentucky refused to be removed from the aircraft. And when things got a little bit rough on him, well, the video of the whole thing went viral. Now, by all accounts, the way this was handled was less than ideal. But we at Radio Parallax would like to raise the question of the legitimacy of fighting police authorities whose job it is to remove you from an aircraft, right or wrong. Wouldn't it be smarter to just exit the aircraft and fight over the whole thing later? The really strange thing about this story is that Dr. Dow apparently somehow managed to breach security and make his way back onto the aircraft, at which point they evacuated all of the passengers off of it, leading to a two-hour delay. There's going to no doubt be a big old lawsuit over this case. After all, this is America where you can sue anybody for anything. But I would like to make the point that Dr. Dow bears a certain amount of responsibility for the mishap that befell him. I mean, if I lost a game, a very unfair game, a rigged game of uh, overbooking roulette, and, you know, men with a badge came on the plane to remove me, I would not uh, force them to slam my head into a seat and then be drug off the aircraft, but that's just me. (laughs) I am dead certain that having been drug on the aircraft, I would not yell, just kill me, and make my way back on board. But again, that's just me. Anyway, we're pretty sure somewhere along the way that Dr. Dow's going to get his head examined. But we have no way of knowing, of course, whether anyone is going to employ the Rorschach inkblot test to examining his psyche. There's currently a book out uh, on the subject of the inkblots, which was excerpted, I believe, in New Scientist. Um, We should talk about this a little bit. I don't have the New Scientist article in front of me, but a review of the book by Damien Searles was in the week um, in March. I think this is worth a little excerpting from. The reviewer noted that the man who invented the Rorschach test finally has a biography, and it surely cannot be long before the biopic. That was written by Helen Rumbelow in the Times of London. She noted that a charming doctor, a sometimes artist, and an unbelievable hottie, Herman Rorschach, was an innovator throughout his short life, noted for bringing a trained monkey to his hospital rounds to help draw out catatonic patients. But the Swiss psychiatrist, who died of a ruptured appendix at just age 37, will always be best remembered as the creator of a psychological test built around 10 ink blots that have not changed since he published them in 1921. Damien Searles' cultural and scientific history of the test proves full of surprises. Maybe the first surprise is that Rorschach painted the blots himself. Others had used ink blots to gauge viewers' imaginative powers, but Rorschach speculated that a visual test made of appropriately enigmatic images could identify salient differences in the way people perceive the world. According to Casey Schwartz in nymag.com, The test worked. Rorschach graded patients' responses diligently, and his method proved replicable as patients garnered consistent scores, no matter the examiner. And psychiatrists used such scores to identify schizophrenics and manic depressives. I would say that the article in New Scientist would very much take issue with that statement. The test apparently caught on in a big way with U.S. therapists and was used during World War II to screen millions of soldiers and private sector employees. Unfortunately, it seems that the people who were administering the tests saw in the results what they wanted to see. I think we'll take that topic up, uh, you know, a week after next when uh, I can uh, 
put my hand on the New Scientist article. This whole thing did remind me of uh, the memorable passages in Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, when he was describing how the Mercury astronauts were pretty much fair game for any sort of testing. Uh, they were going to represent America in our battle with uh, the mighty Soviet Union and its space program. And so they just wanted to, they wanted the right people who had the right stuff. And unfortunately for the astronauts, among the people who had got a whack at them were the psychiatrists. And one trick that at least one psychiatrist liked to play on the astronauts was to hand them a blank sheet of paper and ask them what they saw. If you gave a dull, mundane answer like uh, a snowstorm, a, a blizzard, a whiteout, something like that, well, you know, that was considered, you know, okay, an adequate response. When the psychiatrist pulled this trick on, I, I think it was Wally Shira, I'm not sure, but one of the original Mercury 7 was handed the sheet and asked what he saw, at which point he suspiciously eyed the psychiatrist and said, it's upside down, which then caused the shocked psychiatrist to step up, take, grab the paper and take a look at it to ensure that it in fact was not upside down. According to Tom Wolfe, the psychiatrist, realizing that he had been pranked, then looked at the astronaut and smiled a smile, which was described as approximately 32 degrees Fahrenheit. All right, let's follow the Mercury astronauts back into space, shall we? And um, excerpt from Neil deGrasse Tyson's Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. It should be noted that Dr. Tyson is the director of the world-famous Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Back in January of 2000, the newly rebuilt Hayden Planetarium featured a space show titled Passport to the Universe. Tyson footnotes that Passport to the Universe was written by Anne Druyan and Stephen Soder, who are also the co-authors of the 2014 Fox miniseries Cosmos, a space-time odyssey hosted by this author. They also teamed up with Carl Sagan on the original 1980 PBS miniseries Cosmos, A Personal Voyage. Continuing, the space show took visitors on a virtual zoom from the planetarium out to the edge of the cosmos. En route, the audience viewed the Earth, then the solar system, then watched the hundred billion stars of the Milky Way galaxy shrink and turn to barely visible dots on the planetarium dome. Within a month of opening day, I received a letter from an Ivy League professor of psychology whose expertise was in things that made people feel insignificant. I never knew one could specialize in such a field. He wanted to administer a before and after questionnaire to visitors assessing the depth of their depression after viewing the show Passport to the Universe. He wrote it elicited the most dramatic feelings of smallness and insignificance he had ever experienced. Dr. Tyson goes on, how could that be? Every time I see the space show and others we've produced, I feel alive and spirited and connected. I also feel large, knowing that the goings-on within the three-pound human brain are what enabled us to figure out our place in the universe. Allow me to suggest that it's the professor, not I, who has misread nature. His ego was unjustifiably big to begin with, inflated by delusions of significance and fed by cultural assumptions that human beings are more important than everything else in the universe. In all fairness to the fellow, Powerful forces in society leave most of us susceptible, as was I, until the day I learned in biology class that more bacteria live and work in one centimeter of my colon than the number of people who have ever existed in the world. 
That kind of information makes you think twice about who or what is actually in charge. From that day on, I began to think of people not as masters of space and time, but as participants in a great cosmic chain of being with a direct genetic link across species, both living and extinct, extending back nearly 4 billion years to the earliest single-cell organisms on Earth. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're smarter than bacteria. No doubt about it. We're smarter than every other living thing that ever ran, crawled, or slithered on Earth. But how smart is that? We cook our food. We compose poetry and music. We do art and science. We're good at math. Even if you're bad at math, you're probably much better than the smartest chimpanzee, whose genetic identity varies in only trifling ways from ours. Try as they might, primatologists will never get a chimpanzee to do long division or trigonometry. If small genetic differences between us and our fellow apes account for what appears to be a vast difference in intelligence, then maybe that difference in intelligence is not so vast after all. Imagine a life form whose brain power is to ours as ours is to a chimpanzee. To such a species, our highest mental achievements would be trivial. Their toddlers, instead of learning their ABCs on Sesame Street, would learn multivariable calculus on Boolean Boulevard. Our most complex theorems, our deepest philosophies, the cherished works of our most creative artists would be projects their school kids bring home for mom and dad to display on the refrigerator door with a magnet. These creatures would study Stephen Hawking, who occupies the same endowed professorship once held by Isaac Newton at the University of Cambridge, because he's slightly more clever than other humans. Why? He can do theoretical astrophysics and other rudimentary calculations in his head, like their little Timmy who just came home from alien preschool. If a huge genetic gap separated us from our closest relatives in the animal kingdom, we would justifiably celebrate our brilliance. We might be entitled to walk around thinking we're distant and distinct from our fellow creatures. But no such gap exists. Instead, we are one with the rest of nature, fitting neither above nor below, but within. Need some more ego softeners? Simple comparisons of quantity, size, and scale will do the job. Take water. It's common and vital. There are more molecules of water in an 8-ounce cup than there are cups of water in all the world's oceans. Every cup that passes through every person and eventually rejoins the world water supply holds enough molecules to mix 1,500 of them into every other cup of water in the world. No way around it. Some of the water you drank passed through the kidneys of Socrates, Genghis Khan, and Joan of Arc. Time to get cosmic. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on any beach. More stars than seconds have passed since Earth formed. More stars than words and sounds ever uttered by all the humans who ever lived. He goes on to outline what he describes as the cosmic perspective. And notes that the cosmic perspective flows from fundamental knowledge. But it's more than about what you know. It's also about having the wisdom and insight to apply that knowledge to assessing our place in the universe. He closes the chapter by noting that in our brief stay on planet Earth, we owe ourselves and our descendants the opportunity to explore, in part because it's fun to do. But there's a far nobler reason. The day our knowledge of the cosmos ceases to expand, we risk regressing to the childish view that the universe figuratively and literally revolves around us. In that bleak world, arms-bearing, resource-hungry people and nations would be prone to act on these prejudices. And that would be the last gasp of human enlightenment. 
And that would be stupid. I think we can agree, which takes us back to the quote we started our last segment with from Margaret Atwood, which was that stupidity is the same as evil if you judge by the results. And that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we urge you yet again to please contribute to the pledge drive of your local community-based radio station.